Welcome back to the Philosophy Exchange podcast. We're back for the second episode in our series on philosophy of psychiatry. I'm Bennett Knox from the University of Utah, and I'm here with Nina DeBoer from Radboud University, as well as Jody Russell and Johanna Sarasoy, both from the University of Edinburgh. Hi, everyone. Hi. Hey. Hi. Today, we're talking about Nina's work on the network theory of psychiatric disorders. Nina has published a couple of papers on this topic, one in 2021 and one in 2022, both with several co-authors. We're excited to have her here to talk about her research. Nina, why don't you start us off by just giving us a bit of a summary about your work on the network theory of... Thank you, Bennett, and nice to be here with the three of you. So my project concerns what network approaches to mental disorders can do for psychiatry, for the way that we understand mental disorders, psychiatric disorders, however you want to name it, so to say. So in recent years, there's been a more recognition that many people, both in science and in clinical practice, and also stemming from advocacy groups, that we should move away from essentialist conceptions of mental disorders. So instead of focusing only on the brain or only focusing on the environment or internal factors, so to say, we should actually see how all of these things together play a role in the development and treatment and sustenance of mental disorder. And one approach that has specifically sort of gained interest in the past series is the idea that we can conceptualize mental disorders as networks. So that's this idea that we can see them as being constituted by both social factors, psychological factors, biological factors that all sort of interplay amongst each other. And this is an account that may do quite a good justice to sort of the complex reality of having a mental disorder. And one of the questions that you can then ask is to what extent can these sort of complexity informed approaches actually provide new means of understanding others, understanding ourselves or understanding people with a disorder diagnosis and also whether it leads to the implementation of different scientific tools that can help us to better somehow understand or explain these conditions. So in my project I sort of touch on both whether the scientific models that make use of this idea of networks and network analysis more specifically, whether they can provide us with more understanding of mental disorders than traditional sort of essentialist conceptions, and also just whether in general thinking about mental disorders as networks has so-called epistemic benefits. And that's where these two articles fit in in this more bigger project. Before we go into any questions, just for the listeners, do you want to very briefly explain what the essentialist approach to disorders is and how that contrasts with the network approach? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Joanna, uh, for the clarification. So an essentialist conception of mental disorders, for instance, it sort of relies on this idea that you can locate the primary cause or so say the essence of a mental disorder to one factor. Basically, that you can boil it down to one thing that is often placed in sort of biological level. So for instance, I can argue that we essentialize mental disorders when we say that people with mental disorders just have dysfunctional brains, so to say. So it's this way of sort of framing these all these sort of complex experiences and ideas that people have 
and reducing it down to one explanation that tries to say something about that bigger whole. I'm really excited to talk to you about this um, network theory approach because I can see how amongst scientists, amongst experimenters, I guess, there's a, a lot of motivation, um, a lot of um, energy that goes into trying to develop a more sort of like complex systems view of psychiatry. Uh, but then there's the reality of like, but we're, we're somehow not getting there yet. So when you look at the um, the research of um, Danny Borsworm, who's like one of the, the main heads in developing these network models, um, he's still like pretty much working on, on individual disorders or individual symptoms or symptom networks. Um, and I wonder what are the, the biggest obstacles in developing these, these more complex models? Because initially, intuitively, even from a folk psychological um, standpoint, it just seems so much more intuitive to try and understand psychiatric disorders in the embedded environment that you're in with your genetic makeup, also with the neurological makeup, but like really trying to have this more holistic view is so much more intuitive, but somehow we're just not getting there or we're not there yet. So I really want like, what are the main obstacles here? I think there are many, <laughs> and I think some of them, so you can sort of split that question in two. So the first one is then looking at, so why are the scientific methods or the tools that we use in scientific practice, why is it so hard to do justice to this like multifactorial nature of disorders? And well, that's because like, first of all, it's really hard to, like there's all kinds of difficulties involved in measurements of anything that has to do with psychiatry um that's already quite difficult for say like psychological factors there's a lot of issues in trying to like measure those like adequately in a way that also does justice to people's experiences so that's already sort of very basic where in sort of issue lies and then if you want to incorporate factors coming from different domains then first of all you need to have the data available you need to have data and like tools available that can say something or that can speak to those different domains. And there you can see that, for instance, with the development of apps on smartphones or smartwatches are like means to sort of at least sort of do justice to some of the more dynamic nature of mental disorders, one could say, or personal experience. But then trying to combine that with things coming from neurobiology, other environmental factors, bigger social cultural factors, it's quite difficult to even think about what a statistical model would look like that actually does justice to all of that. So that's more maybe sort of coming more of a practical issues related to these things. And the second, maybe more a conceptual point is that even when realizing that mental health and mental disorder, they are complex and multifactorial and dynamic. Psychiatry as a discipline is sort of like it's quite practice oriented. So you want to at some point know where to intervene or know what to do. And thinking or reasoning about mental disorders is quite difficult when you also want to take that complexity into account. So there's sort of there's a more practical side to this question. I just and that may develop itself further when sort of empirical work <laughs> keeps on going. But then there's also this conceptual question of can we actually think in an informed way about complexity? I wanted to ask you maybe 
this is kind of an unfair question because this is about my own personal interest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, so I wonder where does the um, where does the phenomenal experience of mental disorder come in, and how does that play a role in developing a particular network models of disorder? So, like, where does the lived experience kind of like take uh, its role within like this the system? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. So you have, on the one hand, you can think about how lived experience can inform the data models that we use. And here you can sort of say that there is these new, with the development of personalized network models that make use of personalized data and personalized itemized things that are of importance, that there's a way in which at least sort of the values and the things that are of personal interest to someone can be included in the scientific models that we use. But that's then still a quite like limited way to talk about phenomenological experience concerning whether it can sort of really tap into how people experience themselves is a more difficult question. I think one of the nice things about thinking in terms of network thinking, in terms of complexity, is that it at least does justice to the fact that it's hard <laughs> to tell a personal narrative, to know which kind of things influence what, to not have a clear-cut story available. But I think that every model, so to say, of what a mental disorder is, what it is caused, etc., that there's still quite a far reach from that to actually say something about phenomenological experience. I think for that we need maybe other types of accounts than causal models, so to say. Jody asked about sort of the the personal level phenomenological bit, and I want to ask about the more generalized, like, basically my question is, what sorts of general explanations of mental disorders do you think we can get from the network model? Because I know you talk about this quite a bit in the in the papers. Um, like, what what are what are the sorts of general explanations of say, major depression that we can get out of the network model that we couldn't from others? And like, what are the limitations of that approach as well? Thanks for the question. I think sort of one of the the type of explanations that a network account can afford is explanations that say something about the dynamics of the system, the disorder as a whole. And these explanations are in a way one can say quite abstract. So it could concern, for instance, whether sort of the close-knitness or the density of how all these factors relate to each other, that that can say something or that that can explain sort of vulnerability or propensity to developing a disorder. It can maybe say something about how specific factors are maybe more central, so to say, or it can explain how different things sort of within the larger network cluster together. But these explanations are in a way a bit abstracted from everyday, yeah, also experience, so to say. It's sort of concerns about how this idea of when when you'd argue that symptoms are strongly connected, say then when someone who is insomniac, that, that will very strongly influence or very fastly leads to them, for instance, being worried the next day that it will very fastly or strongly lead to concentration problems, these two sort of issues reaching out to other people, etc. When you see that those things form a tight-knit sort of cycle, 
um, that can then be put forward as sort of an explanation of this sort of spiraling into maybe a certain condition. But you can wonder, A, what does this say about interventions? What, what should we then do? And B, this is quite an abstract general sort of account that can say something about how this generally works for people. But then the specifics should maybe either be left to other accounts or should just not be filled in by such a scientific model. So it does give you a different way of looking at these conditions, but it will not be likely to give sort of the all <laughs> definitive, clear explanation of what is happening. It's just a different way to shed light on these conditions, I think. Just to, to follow up on Bennett's question, I think one thing that was um, in my mind when, when reading your papers. Um, so one thing one thing is like how do how do we disambiguate kind of irrelevant causal correlations from actual causal connections? So two things may seem to come together and come together regularly, but they may not be directly relevant for understanding the disorder itself. And what's the relevant level of, of complexity? Because um, we could in, theoretically encompass every possible causal connection on every possible level. Would that then make the network model unusable in, in the next domain when we're thinking about treatment? How do we select what's the relevant level of complexity for, for our models to be to be useful? Yeah, that's a question that I've indeed sort of been struggling with since starting this project. It's the idea that intuitively speaking, you can maybe say that, well, the more we include, the better, because the more factors we include, the more maybe certain, in between quotation marks, we can say that sort of the things that we find in our models pertain to some the true causal patterns or tap into the true underlying complexity of what's happening but indeed as you say that's you can wonder whether some of the factors you include are more relevant than others and that's where i do think that for the use of for instance use of specific network models as in sort of data models in practice that they're really sort of the relevance should be established based on conversations <laughs> with the individual see what they deem of importance in their life which things they do they think hang together which kind of hypotheses they have and that may then not map on completely to to the theory so to say or to sort of the real complexity but having said that i do think saying something about sort of actual causality with scientific models is not really possible <laughs> um anyways <laughs> i believe um and i think if you then end up with a model that makes sense for an individual where the causal connections make sense to them where they feel that the relevant factors have been included so to say that at least if you put maybe like self-understanding or understanding as sort of a goal of these models rather than accurate representation that that's sort of the way to go but addressing this will most likely not be 
simple. <laughs> I think that really ties in very nicely with our first episode, actually, on on Bennett's work, um, where it's it seems like in psychiatry we're maybe not less concerned, but I think the the immediate goal seems to be more like okay, we need to have something that is practically workable that has practical benefits for the people who are supposed to benefit from it. And that's our main concern. And that's how we are like looking at the models that we're constructing versus in other domains or in other parts of psychiatry, maybe like other research groups, their main concern might be, let's find an, a model that is like as accurate as possible, that explains the causal um, relations between symptoms or the symptom network as accurately as possible. And I, th- I think there's this... Um, there's this concern sometimes when we openly and transparently admit that we're letting values very much guide model development, um, that what we're doing is, is somehow less scientific or less um, like sound science. Um, but when you when you look at like any sort of model development, that, that's the reality of any scientific model. It's always values. It's always like the, the goal that you have in mind that you construct a model for. And that's the, the case in psychiatry. That's the case in like climate science. That's whatever discipline you look at, I think. And it, I think at least being transparent and open about it is actually better than like trying to hide and pretend that you, what you're trying to do is bringing out the most objective in quotation mark model, because that's that's just not a thing that you can attain. No. I very much agree with that. And that's why I also uh, I was sort of excited to read Bennett's work <laughs> that very explicitly states that we need to embrace these values and plurality of perspectives. And I think the same is the case for scientific models that we use. Um, so values will definitely play a role in the theories, in both the theories and the data models that we make use of. We can argue, for instance, that conceptualizing mental disorders as brain disorders, there may be something to that, but for the goals or the specific ideas that we have concerning if we value understanding as a goal, uh, the ability to construe personal narratives, the ability to intervene, then that kind of theory does not really do justice to those specific goals and values. Whereas maybe a network theory or another type of more holistic theory may. Um, But it's not to say that um, indeed those theories and the models that follow from it are necessarily more true or better (laughs) in a way. They may just be more um, linked or maybe more suited for the specific values and context that we have in mind. But even if that is the case, we should be very explicit about how it is that these models may either neutrally or positively or negatively affect our model and theory construction. but by pretending that our models and our theories do not have any values or goal directedness embedded into them at all, I think we're sort of doing a disservice <laughs> to psychiatry. Yeah, definitely. I just want to say first off, I I definitely see a lot of overlap between what what you're doing here and the work that I'm trying to do as well. Um, especially with regard to you know the role of values, the role of perspectives of the people we're talking about and trying to help that sort of thing. Um, so I really appreciated that sort of aspect of, of the papers. Um, I wanted to ask about what your sense of 
the like uptake of this type of model is. So at, at one point in one of the papers, you mentioned the RDoC, for instance, mm -hmm. which I, I feel like I'm conflicted about because it seems like it could be compatible with a type of network model. I'm not sure that the RDoC really lives up to that. Sorry, let me, let me, let me clarify the research domain criteria project, which is an outgrowth of the National Institutes for Mental Health, which has this sort of like, it's trying to be a, a sort of new conception of, of mental disorder that doesn't necessarily, you know, take the DSM approach of here's a diagnosis and we're going to study that diagnosis. It sort of tries to build in all different levels and different factors. So in that way, it seems like it overlaps with the network model. On the other hand, I think that my impression of the RDoC anyway, is that it still sort of ends up straying towards the sort of neuroessentialism that we, you know, got started off by saying, by, by critiquing. So I just wondered what your impression was of that sort of thing and what sort of more generally you think whether, you know, people are actually going to use the, the network model more going forward. Yeah, I think the benefits and the problems with networks is that they're very empty templates. So you can basically fit everything within a network and then say that it sort of lines up. So I think indeed, like in one of the papers I pointed out as well, as it may be compatible with RDoC, but I think then the idea that there's different factors that are interconnected lines up with this idea of RDoC. If you look at the principles that inform network theory, so say as sort of as a specific theoretical approach, they try to do more justice to at least sort of like folk psychological intuitions that symptoms or like mental states cause each other, as well as complexity. So this idea that all together they sort of form this bigger dynamic whole, so to say. So in that way, network models or like network as a template could be compatible with the RDoC approach, but the emphasis of a network theory that focuses explicitly on causal mental states where other types of factors are involved as well, um, puts the emphasis in a different place. Concerning the overall take up, I think that very much depends on how these things are further developed, so to say thinking about mental disorders in terms of complexity, in terms of networks, is still a bit sort of at, at the forefront, one could say, but it is very easily, I think, misadopted and overhyped because you can basically present everything as a network. So whether it is of use <laughs> will, I think, uh, depend on how, how it is used in practice, so to say, and actually sort of, further investigations that show whether the aims, namely it being able to lead to more understanding, better explanations, intervention points for treatment, whether they work. <laughs> else, yeah, else I think it'll be, it'll not overrule all the other models. So to say, it's just a different tool we can add to the toolbox that definitely has to be explored further, but will not be the ultimate solution, I think. Uh, to something as difficult as mental health. I think we're we're almost out of time, but I do want to ask you this one question that I asked Bennett as well. And like Jody, be prepared. I'm going to ask you in the next episode um, <laughs> as well. Um, what do you see the role of philosophy being for a discipline like psychiatry, or at least what is your role as a philosopher? Do you have like a secret <laughs> motivation, like a, a hidden 
hidden goal or uh, yeah, I don't know, like an <laughs> agenda. <laughs> so this is going to be me improving. Uh, <laughs> As with the other questions. That's how it should be. Jody, don't think about the question. No. Pretend <laughs> that you've never had this question before. Um, so my personal goal, I think psychiatry as a discipline, psychiatry, how it is practiced in a clinical practice, how mental disorders are being studied, has like, very big implications for people. And that was my main reason to go into the philosophy of psychiatry. And for me then, trying to clarify a bit more what scientists or clinicians mean when they say that X or Y causes a mental disorder or that we now found X and Y by studying mental disorders, by getting a bit more clarity on what that means. And what that implies and whether their claims hold up is actually for me, as someone who's quite theoretically minded, the best way to try to shape that narrative. I'm really glad that we were able to do the second episode. I'm looking forward to the third episode. Um, Thank you, Nina, for giving us your time. Thank you all for the questions. And uh, uh, I'm very happy that there are so many PhDs working on that similar stuff and with that we've come to the end of our second episode of the philosophy of psychiatry series stay tuned for the third episode which will air in two weeks where we will interview jody russell on her work as always make sure to follow us on twitter subscribe to our spotify channel or check us out on our website see you next time